the next day, Jesus decided, to me, decided sounds random. That's what I do, right? I'm like, I decide to go here versus there. But the word has purpose in it. Jesus purpose. Jesus doesn't decide to do anything as if he's weighing his options and settling on the best course. Jesus purposes to go to Galilee. You see, Jesus had a plan, and he executes that plan. And part of that plan includes finding and calling Philip. Unlike the other disciples who have begun to follow Jesus, Philip is pursued by Jesus. The others follow Jesus at the suggestion of John the Baptist, or in Peter's case, at the behest of his brother Andrew. But Jesus went purposefully and found Philip and calls him to follow him. Now, found, again, does not mean that Jesus happened to stumble upon him. Found entails purpose. No, Jesus actively sought Philip. Now, we see the very heart of God on display who has been pursuing man from the very beginning. Since our fall into sin, God has been pursuing sinners, wooing them, blessing them, and calling them back to him when they were wayward. Listen to these verses from Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11 and verse 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And again in verse 16, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. We get the picture of a shepherd who is going after his sheep, who is pursuing them. The one who decided by purposing to go to Galilee so that he could find Philip. This is precisely what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. And the one that calls Philip to follow him is the one who pursues him. Now we could put this in theological terms as an indicative and an imperative. The indicative is Jesus pursues you. And the imperative, follow him. As we noticed last week, following Jesus is more than just moving in his general direction. Following Jesus means entering into a radical, life-altering relationship with the one who is changing your desires, who is remaking your character to be more like him. But it is precisely because we know that we have been sought by Jesus that we can follow him. He came and he found you, therefore you can follow him. So this text opens to us the heart of Jesus while correcting any notion we might have of turning our following of Jesus into something we do to get Jesus to pursue us. You don't follow Jesus in order to get his attention. He already has your attention and he calls you to follow him. This text opens us to the very heart of Jesus. Now, maybe in your mind, you're objecting. You're thinking, Jesus hasn't pursued me. That would be great if Jesus just showed up at my door and knocked on the door and and said, follow me. And in one sense, you're right. Jesus doesn't physically show up on your doorstep. But that doesn't mean that he isn't pursuing you. He is. 
You would not be sitting here today if Jesus had not pursued you, nor would I. And that's because it would, it's impossible. The opposite is impossible. It may seem that you are the one doing all the pursuing, but in reality, apart from the grace of God, which, by the way, is God pursuing you, that's what grace is. God coming and showing you his favor despite what you deserve. You would still be dead in your sins. And the last time I checked, dead people don't pursue anything. They pursue being dead. Only by Jesus coming to you, finding you, and calling you are you able to respond. And if that is the case, that Jesus pursued you in very much the same way that he pursued Philip, why then do we find it so easy to doubt his love? Writ large over the pages of Scripture is the story of God who pursues sinners so that he can save them. He doesn't pursue sinners who are already righteous. He pursues them for the very purpose of making them righteous. His pursuit was not theoretical. It was not just a thought in his mind, but it was resulted in tangible action. God sent his only son to come and enter into our lost condition and walk with us and then give his life as a ransom to free us from sin. His pursuit of sinners was tangible and costly, but in the end it leads all of us who have been pursued to glory in him. Some of you who are perennially wrestling with assurance, constantly feeling God's pursuit of you to be one of condemnation, you do so because you fixate on the command, follow me. But where you need to focus your attention is he found you. Anxious questions about the quality of your following him and whether or not your motivations are right are all wrong. Instead, you need to hear this. Jesus says, I found you. I deliberately went looking for you, and it wasn't hard to find you. Even though you're still trying to hide from me, I found you. You are mine because the Father gave you to me, and I purchased you. I purchased your redemption with my life on the cross. And by my spirit, I'm still pursuing you today, continuing to call you to follow me. You need to focus there. God sent his son to pursue you because he loves you. But others of you do need to focus more attention on Jesus' command, follow me. You're pretty comfortable with the idea that Jesus pursues you because you are rather happy with yourself. I mean, who wouldn't want to pursue me? I'm great. While it remains true that Christ has found you, he will not leave you in the same condition that he found you in. He will remake you to be like him. And the problem is, you have confused the path that he calls you to follow him on as one of comfort and ease. Like Christian, in the Pilgrim's Progress, you leave the hard path for the wide, green, easy path that seems to run directly parallel to it. But what happened to him will happen to you. You will wake up one day with a great chasm between where you should be and where you are. And then God will bring you back to where you departed from that narrow path to begin following him again. 
Who is Jesus that calls you to follow him? Jesus is the one who knows you. He knows you, you know him. Notice in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip does what Andrew did in verse 41. He went and he found Nathanael to tell him that he has found the Messiah. And this is the consistent experience, I believe, of all who have met Christ. You want to tell everyone. When I came to faith, I couldn't shut up about Jesus. My platoon sergeant became so frustrated with my witnessing that he banished me to the tool room so that I wouldn't talk to anyone else. I was grateful because I could bring my books in there. Now, John is the only one who mentions the disciple of Jesus named Nathaniel. And in truth, we just don't know that much about him or other, other than Jesus' description of him. Some of scholars think that his name is closely related in the same meaning to Bartholomew. And he is listed, Bartholomew is listed in other uh, lists of the apostle next to Philip. So some conclude that Nathaniel is Bartholomew. In truth, not much is known about many of the disciples outside of the close circle of intimates, James and John and Peter and Paul, of course. And largely because we have their letters that are recorded for us in the New Testament. And they give us not only discussion about theology, but they share something of their own personal testimony of Jesus Christ. And so we know most about John and Peter and Paul. The other disciples we don't know that much about. And Nathaniel, we know only what Jesus describes of him. You see, Philip's description of Jesus is telling and speaks mainly to the character of Nathaniel. Whereas Andrew tells his brother Peter that he has found the Messiah, and that's all. But Philip uses a different phrase to capture the same reality. In this, we find an enduring principle in evangelism. You have to know your audience. You have to know who you're speaking to. The message of the gospel must be translated into something that's intelligible to the audience. If you come with your Christianese, your non-Christian friends will not have a clue what you're talking about. If you begin to start to tell them about the atonement, you've lost them already. You have to translate it into language that they will understand. You have to find creative ways to say the same things. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're, we water the message down. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have to know your audience and present it in such a way that they can understand it. By the way, this, of course, means that you have to know your audience. You can't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You do your research. Pay attention to the world around you. There are myriads of ways that we can build bridges to the culture to connect them with the gospel. Popular culture, movies, songs, books, all of these are great ways for us to connect with the culture around us because you will find them hungering after God. They don't have the language to articulate it, but the hunger is there, and we can talk about it, just like Paul does to the Athenians in, in his uh, sermon in Acts 17. See, Philip knows that Nathaniel is a scripture guy. 
He has immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures and he knows the law and the prophets. Calvin actually gives Philip a hard time for what he calls two gross errors in his testimony. Calvin is bothered because Jesus is not from Nazareth, right? He's from Bethlehem, but he lives in Nazareth. Remember, his parents flee from Bethlehem because of Herod and they settle in Nazareth, in Galilee. And of course, that becomes the base of his operation, but he only lives there. And he's not the natural son of Joseph who merely raised him, for he is the son of God. Something Nathaniel will come to confess shortly. However, despite Nathaniel's incredulity over Nazareth being a place where a significant figure like the Messiah could ever come from, he does go with Philip to meet Jesus. A fact that Calvin makes much of to show that despite our failures of evangelism, God makes up the difference, right? ways of to bring about faith in the life of people. Philip's response to Nathaniel's doubt is the perpetual call of all evangelists, even as it echoes Jesus' own statement in verse 39. Come and see. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth probably means stick, the stick, the sticks. Can anything good come from the sticks? No famous figure is ever mentioned in Scripture that comes from Nazareth. That's what Nathaniel's saying. I've read the Bible through and through. Nowhere does the Messiah come from Nazareth, right? So Philip says, come and see. Both are imperatives that challenge the original here, and they provide us, the reader, with an invitation. You might have had similar complaints. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see as a challenge to our own preconceived notions of who Jesus is. Because we all come expecting something of Jesus. We want him to be something, but not from Nazareth, right? Rome, that would be great. The capital city or some place of wisdom, Nazareth. Again, as Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him, just as he did Peter, he sees Nathanael in ways that Nathanael has never been seen. And after looking at him, Jesus exclaims, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he say this? First, he says this, of course, for Nathaniel's sake, so that Nathaniel would begin to understand that Jesus knows him. He knows him. He knows him in ways that are unlike anyone could naturally know. He knows him like a creator knows his creation. It's not in the sense of him sizing Nathaniel up and, and seeing some good leadership qualities. And yeah, he's got a good stature. He's tall. He's handsome. I think he could be a good disciple. No, that's not what he's seeing. He's seeing Nathaniel in the very core of his being. And he's seeing what he will remake him to be. The statement should not be understood to mean that Nathaniel is perfect, but that he is faithful to confess his sins. You see, a deceitful person hides his sins, pretending to be righteous claiming that he is righteous, right? And this, this marked out many of the religious people in the first century. They looked the part on the outside. They had everything together. 
They dressed the right way. They did the right things. They said the right things. But inside, they were like dead men. It's captured well in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. That's what Jesus sees in Nathanael. He sees a man who confesses his sins, a man who recognizes that from the, but from the grace of God, I would be perishing in my sin. But it, it may also be a veiled reference to Jacob, which we're going to look at more closely when we get to verse 51. Now, naturally, Nathaniel responds sort of inquisitively. How do you know me? Like, how do you know me? I've never even seen you. How do you know that I don't have deceit in me? That I'm an Israelite with no deceit? How do you know? How can you say such things about me? And Jesus responds, blows Nathanael away so that he makes this grand confession. At the very beginning of the gospel, before Jesus has done any of his signs that is meant to lead us to faith, Nathanael confesses. Now, the statement is actually pretty meaningless to us. Many commentators and scholars have looked in vain, in my opinion, for some symbolic meaning in the elements of this statement. All Jesus says is, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. We can speculate. It's easy for our minds to wander off. Why was this moment significant? Since the fact that Jesus knows that this leads Nathanael to his confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. What could have taken place to lead scriptures? I don't know, and the text doesn't encourage us to speculate. What is essential is that Nathanael is known. He's known by Jesus even before Nathanael knows him. He is known. And what's more, Nathanael knows that he is known. Have you ever met a kindred spirit? Someone who, when you met them for the first time, you just clicked? You, it seems like almost you've known them forever. You can have a conversation and it just flows. Even that pales in comparison with the knowledge that Jesus has of you. All our desire for intimacy sought in relationships, in marriage, and friendships, they all leave us wanting more. Hungry for more. We hunger for something that can only be satisfied with a relationship with the one who made us, with our creator. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Nathaniel experiences this intimacy when Jesus tells him, I know you. Leading, of course, to his great confession. You are the son of God, the king of Israel. The people of God had come to see that these two titles were the same. Israel's promised king, the son of David, as even David himself confessed in Psalm 110, is identified with God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He was both Lord and God, being the son of God. And you see that being known in this way, that deeply, that intimately led Nathaniel, before Jesus had even performed any of his great signs, to say, Jesus is the Christ. He knows me. He knows me like I've never been known. 
Who is the Jesus who calls you to follow him? He is the one who knows you even before you know him. But just because through Jesus' prophetic knowing, Nathaniel believes, Jesus does not want Nathaniel to stay there. He wants Nathaniel in that initial faith to grow to maturity. Nathaniel believes, but Jesus doesn't want his belief to be based just on that miraculous supernatural knowledge. Notice in verse 50, Jesus says, Because I said this to you, that's why you believe? You will see greater things than these. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus chastises people because of their superficial beliefs based on what they see with their eyes. Nathaniel sees the supernatural knowledge of Jesus and believes based on that. Yet, this is merely the beginning of belief in Jesus. And often, it does not result in true saving faith. Notice Jesus' remarks in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 23. And this is after he has turned the water into wine. And John is sort of summarizing his ministry at that time. And he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus is distrustful of easy believism. It's easy to marvel at miraculous works and mighty deeds, but it's quite another thing to follow Jesus even to the cross. It is not those who have seen and believed that are rewarded, but those who have never seen and yet believe. You may scoff at those who had the privilege to be in the presence of Jesus, to see his works with their eyes, to touch him, to bear eyewitness to what he had done, and yet fall into unbelief. But we, we are just as prone to come to Jesus because of what we may think he can do for us, for our felt needs. Although this is a warning not to remain believing only because of miracles, I don't think that Jesus is condemning Nathaniel. I think he commends him for beginning well and encourages him to press forward. You will see greater things than these. We are now introduced to the phrase, Amen, a woman, for amen is a stramation of what has been stated. It's not a gendered term. Unfortunately, some chaplains don't know that. And Matthew, Jesus says, truly, I say to you. But in John, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Normally, we conclude our prayers with an amen, right? We are assenting to the truth of what we just prayed. Which, by the way, if you fall asleep while I'm praying, you probably shouldn't say amen. Because you might not know what you're agreeing to. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) But Jesus begins with amen as a way of underscoring to us the importance of what he's about to tell us. Some commentators see the double amen in John as a mark of authenticity. This is true. What I'm telling you, pay attention. Listen to this because it is true. Jesus shifts in this statement 
from addressing Nathanael to addressing the rest of his disciples. And by extension, of course, to all of us. It says, and he said to Nathanael, amen, amen, I say to all of you. Then he begins in the plural to address all of his disciples. You will see greater things than this. You, you will see greater things than this. You will see heaven opened is perhaps a veiled reference to his baptism where the other gospel writers recount the heavens being opened and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, while the spirit descends on him as a dove. The term is symbolic of revelation. Listen to this from Ezekiel 1.1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles of the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And then Ezekiel recounts his prophecy. You see, the heavens were open because God had revealed himself to Ezekiel. And over and over again throughout Scripture, we see that Stephen, the deacon, as he's being stoned to death, sees the heavens opened. They are revealed to him. And Peter sees the heavens open when he sees the sheet descend and all the unclean animals on the sheet. And he realizes that God is saying that what I have called clean, you should not call unclean. You could easily translate that phrase, you will see the heavens revealed. The heavens are the archetype for which the earth is merely a shadow copy, marred as it is in sin. The heavens are also... The opening up of the heavens is to provide access to God so that we can come into His presence, revealing God to us. As John has already shown, that that is the very purpose for the Father sending the Son. And the next statement is an allusion to Genesis 28. Jacob, the patriarch's vision on his way to stay with Laban, which we read from our Old Testament lesson. He is fleeing from his brother Esau, And there he dreams of a ladder that's set up on the earth with its top in the heaven. And on the top of the ladder is the Lord who is above it. And the angels were ascending and descending on this ladder to Jacob in the dream. And he's, of course, God is reaffirming his covenant that he made with Abraham and with Isaac. And let's notice that that point in verse 16 when he says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He calls that place Bethel. Beth meaning house. El meaning God. The house of God. Because the heavens were opened up and God has revealed himself to Jacob. But Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun. Of man. Notice the difference. The Son of Man becomes the ladder connecting heaven and earth, where the angels are ascending and descending on him. He is the one that opens heaven, he is the one that reveals the Father, he is the one that provides access up into the throne room of grace. Jesus is Bethlehem. That's what Jesus is drawing his attention to. And notice that. After this point, Jacob, whose name becomes Israel, was at least before this event a very deceitful man. 
he had tricked and connived to get the blessing. But from this point, he begins to straighten up. And God renames him Israel before he returns to the land of promise. And there may be an allusion to that when Jesus says to Nathanael, there's an Israelite in who there's no deceit. Jacob's name becomes Israel. Jesus is pointing to Nathanael and saying, you're like Jacob after he was transformed by seeing God. And Jesus promised Nathanael will have an unprecedented revelation of the heavenly realities through Jesus. He will draw this out repeatedly as the disciples over and over again struggle to understand. Later in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, I've been revealing the Father this whole time. That's the very purpose I came, so you could have access to God. I provide that. I'm the ladder that you will ascend or descend into heaven through. Greater than the miracle of Jesus knowing all things about Nathanael, he is making all things known to them. Jesus prays this in his high priestly prayer. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That's the greater things than these that Jesus wants his disciples to sink their faith in. Not just that I know you, not just that I can do a miracle or I can say something that's indescribable, but that I came to reveal the Father and you have seen me, you have seen him. Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. But in reality, he's much more than the King of one nation. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the eternal Word of God, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God. But it will take the rest of the gospel as Jesus walks with them, teaching them, as he demonstrates the signs that show he is the one who opens heaven. Luther helpfully points out that this reality began in the incarnation of the Word and continues until his coming again. Luther said, quote, When Christ became man, and began to preach, heaven opened and remains open. And never since at Christ's baptism in Jordan it was open. Has it closed? Nor will it close. Though we see it not now with bodily eye, Christ means you are now citizens of heaven and your citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. And you are in the fellowship of the dear angels who ceaselessly ascend and descend upon you. Jesus is the one who opens heaven and keeps it open so that you can see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. The one who calls you to follow him is the one who has pursued you, who knows you even before you know him. He is the one who has opened heaven to reveal the Father and provide access into the throne room of grace. 
And as we make the difficult task of conformity to Christ in his suffering first, and then also in his resurrection life, our daily aim, we are so armed with the indicative that Christ who pursues and knows you like no one else has also provided the means of our discipleship through the revelation of the heavenly reality. Paul gets at the same thing when, he, when turning to outline the imperatives of the Christian life by calling you to set your mind on the things that are above, where Christ is. The only way you can do that is because Christ has opened up the way for you. Amen? Amen. So, let's start with singing together. Franklin Agnes Day. It's printed for you in your bulletin.